Hello, Latin America in Focus listeners. As we approach the end of 2019 and kick off a new year, we're reissuing a few of our most popular episodes of the past year. We hope you enjoy them, and we hope you join us for fresh new episodes in 2020. In the meantime, happy holidays. Lo imposible en El Salvador es posible. He's 37, a social media maven, and he won El Salvador's presidential election without the backing of either of the country's two main parties. That doesn't mean Nayib Bukele is a political newcomer. He previously served as the mayor of the capital. Still, when he takes office in June, his presidency will mark the end of 10 years in power for the leftist FMLN. Change is coming to El Salvador. On May 7th, Council of the Americas hosted Bukele at our annual Washington conference at the State Department. CNBC's Michelle Caruso Cabrera talked with a young leader about his vision for El Salvador, how he sees relations with countries like Venezuela and China, and an ambitious promise he's made on the immigration front. I'm Karin Zissas of ASCOA Online. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. President-elect Nayib Bukele was elected president of El Salvador in a historic landslide, February 3rd, 2019. He won 53% of the vote in the first round, hence no second round. All 14 municipalities, every city in El Salvador, and received more votes than all of the other candidates and political parties combined. When he takes office on June 1st, he will be the youngest president in Latin America. 37. We're not jealous. I think he might be the youngest in the world. He's going to become the first president since 1984 to have not been elected as a candidate of one of the country's two major political parties. Sound familiar? Yeah. And his election was also the product of his movement, Nuevas Ideas. Uh, His main campaign theme was, there's enough money when nobody steals. Throughout his campaign, he opted to speak directly with voters without the traditional media filter through the use of technology. Facebook live broadcasts dwarfed traditional television audiences and were a very effective way to get his message out directly to the voters. Uh, In his first speech as president-elect, he pledged to eliminate completely forced migration by the end of his term in 2024. That happened when he spoke at the Heritage Foundation earlier this year. Good to have you here. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you to everyone for being here. Yes, I'm very honored. And congratulations, you have your first child coming yes. in July. That's our, that's our best achievement, we're having <laughs> our, our first child at the end of July, or maybe the first days of August. So my wife, Gabriela, is over there. Congratulations. And our little, our little kid coming. We want to give you the opportunity to make some opening remarks, and then, and then we'll, we'll chat a little bit. What, well, what yes, do you want thank to tell you. this crowd? Well, we're very honored to be here at the Council of the Americas. Uh, 
I think this is, this is quite a place to be. It's because of the fact that we, we know that the only way that we can thrive and we can have a substantial, huge economic growth is with the help of international investment. So we, we're looking for that investment, and I know that this is the place to be. And if you have any doubts, and I know you have some, so we're, I will rather give those minutes to, for the doubts instead of just talking about something that I could have prepared. Okay. Yeah. Let's get started then. Uh, let's set the table for what, what your view is on the economic continuum. It's a question I ask every uh, head of state and would-be head of state and want to be head of state and also young students as well. When it comes to dividing a nation's resources to do the most good for the most people, what's better, the government or the markets? It's obviously the markets. The short answer is the markets. Now, why? Because, you know, in, in, a small, in a small country like ours, we cannot even rely only on, on our internal consumption. I mean, our internal consumption, it's, it's interesting. That's why we have companies like Walmart, for example, over there. And, but but our, we have to rely on, on exports. So, of course, it's not only the market within the country, but the world market. I mean, with a globalized economy, that would dwarf any government policy that we would try to implement, and just as the fact that we're so small against the world, that it's not only an ideological thing, an ideological thing to say, oh, the markets are better than the government. It's just the fact that the world market, it's a billion times greater than our whole economy. So, of course, it's the market. Uh, you say, of course, but every politician, almost every politician says, well, you know, it's a combination of the two. They almost never want to take a stand. Well, so. prob well probably they, they don't have things that are clear, but, but I mean, it's the market, definitely. They, 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 cannot, they cannot fight math with rhetoric. <laughs> so good. I gotta write that down. When you, um, your win, do you think it's I would the like to have more, more money in, in our government. Yes. Though, but yeah, but it's, not, it's just a fact, right? Do you think the population voted for markets or did the population vote that they hate corruption and they're tired of it? Because this is a dramatic change from what has been a Marxist leadership. Yes. I think Salvadorans voted for a huge sort of issues. Like you, like you said, we, we, we won every, every demographic. So, of course, not everybody voted for the same thing. Most people, most people voted for hope that things may change for the better. Some people voted, of course, because they were tired of the same old corrupt politicians. Some people voted because they were tired for the two-party system that was an inheritance of the civil war that we had in the 80s. Some people voted because they were tired of the current government and their ideology, which I wouldn't say it's Marxist. It's just pro-Venezuela. Venezuelan money, so it's not, I mean, it's, it's not, I, I just think that a lot of people voted for different sort of issues, but everybody voted to have a better country. So now we have to lead, and right now we have to do what's best for the country. So, and people, people are, are trusting us to do that. We just uh, appointed our new, sec uh, our new uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, she's with her with, uh, with us today, here. Uh, we just appointed some of our cabinet, uh, new cabinet positions. They are all women, um, the ones you haven't appointed yet. 
And uh, I think people, people are looking into that. I mean, it, that was not a campaign promise, but people like it. So what we have to do now is to lead and to lead our country into a better future. And I think that 100% of our voters are betting on that, that we can improve our, our country, we can improve our, their lives. And they are trusting that, that, we, that, we, that we could do that. And actually, this opportunity that life has given us is unique, and it will not happen again. So if we mess it up, that would be a huge blow to us. So we have to do it right, and we'll do it right. President Trump is extremely frustrated with the level of emigration out of Central America. We are too. You are too. Yes. What do you say to him? Well, we share this, the same concern for different reasons. Uh, immigration is the symptom of the diseases we have. Imagine a country. Well, I'm going to put this in context. El Salvador has a third of its population living outside its borders. A third. So we have 6 million inside and 3 million outside. 80% of them in the United States. That's not something to be proud of. And the fact that we have a third of the population living outside is something that we should be ashamed of. Because People don't leave their families and their country to cross three frontiers in a desert just because things are fine. They do it because things are not fine. And it's a symptom, it's a symptom of the diseases we have, violence, lack of uh, economic growth, lack of investments in all of the rural areas. They, some of them migrate to the cities, some of them migrate to the United States, some of them migrate first to the cities and then to the United States. So we have to end that. Not migration. Migration is fine. Migration is great. But we have to end what I call forcible migration, which is the migration you do because you don't have any option. And like I was telling yesterday to some business, uh, some business people, I was talking yesterday, if we create one job, that's five less people in the border. Five. Why do you get that multiplier effect? Because they don't bring a family? Well, they... no, not, not only that, but let's see. In, in, in the States, a family has one or two kids, right? In El Salvador, a family has seven kids. Yeah. So, that's for one. Second, let's say, let's don't... No pressure. <laughs> We're not having seven. But, I mean, and that's not an average. It's just like, a, you know, just to put it in context. But let's say, let's say that one person would be the support of two. That would make three. And, th and these three people will spend their money if they have a job over there. And let's say one job creates half a job, right? One direct job creates and one half indirect job. So that would be 4.5 people uh, per job. Mm -hmm. So I then try to average it to five. You want to say four, fine. But imagine one job would create, would reduce five or four people at the border. That means that if we achieve our goal of job creation, that's a half a million jobs, that would be at least two million, if not 2.5 million people less at the border in the next five years. So that's why, why I said that I think at the end of our term, we, got, we, have, we will be successful in ending forceful migration. What steps are you gonna take to create Job creation. Well, I cannot create job creation. Right. Sorry. We spoke, but you're going to create. You want to create jobs. How are you going to do that? 
I can't raise your salary. What can we do, and we will do, it will work. Because it's not a recipe that we invented. I mean, it's not like I'm going to say, OK, you know, I'm going to make a chocolate lemon with a strawberry cake, and I don't know how to do it. It's just a recipe that's there. The cooks are there. So we can do this. Um, Economics are not that. It's not rocket science, right? It has, it has its complexities, but it's not rocket science. Don't tell the economists that, because they want to make it that way. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so um, in El Salvador, for example, we have a huge industry in textiles ju just because we have a uh, DR CAFTA, right? So CAFTA. We have, mm -hmm. Yeah, CAFTA. Uh, so we have a. We call it DR because of the Dominican Republic. Yeah, kept. So we have a huge textile industry that creates 84,000 formal jobs. I say formal jobs because we have a huge informal sector. That's a lot of jobs in a country with 6 million people. So they invested a lot. They were growing since we signed uh, the CAFTA agreement. But 10 years ago, with the upcoming of the, the government that is, still in, that is still in power as of today, they will, they will leave and May 31st, we haven't had one single investment in, tech, in the textile industry in 10 years. So we had a huge, invest, we had a huge investment in the textile industry from Hanes, Fruit of the Loom, huge, Adidas, Nike, huge. Now, we haven't had one in 10 years. And if you speak to the sector, they will tell you, we just haven't, invest, haven't invested any money just because we have uncertainty in what this government is going to do. So, because their ideas, what they say, the, it gives us uncertainty. And no businessman wants uncertainty. So they take their investments somewhere else. Now, another issue we have is, so I have spoken with them. And I said, OK, but let's see Central America. You have Guatemala. They're going to elections. Where you know what's going to happen. You have Honduras. You had previous election. You knew what happened. You have Nicaragua. This is losing 150,000 jobs per year. So it seems like the best place to put your money in is El Salvador, right? So then it's a stable, it's fine, it's getting better. The new president is cool and he knows what to do. <laughs> you should put your money here. They said, yeah, well, you should put your money here, but we still have to solve some problems. First, in El Salvador, it takes what it would take. I was, I was talking this yesterday. If you want to open a, a shop, a bicycle shop right here, it could take you 12 hours and four permits. But if you want to open a bicycle shop in, the, in, in El Salvador, it might take you three to four months. Mm -hmm. And you will need probably 12 to 14 permits. So we want to change that, and we will do it online. So now you will just go online, fill your four or five reports or files. You, you, you file that online. Then it will come back and say, OK, you're missing, we're missing your social security number and a photo of your ID. You take that, you'll send that, and say, OK, now your permit is here. If you want to print it, or you just carry it on your phone. And then you can open your shop. And that is not rocket science. A lot of people have done it. Right. Just do it in the El Salvador. So we're, we're going to do permits fast. And the other thing we're going to do is that we're going to, we're going to flexibilize the, the times of labor. Right now in El Salvador, some people say, no, we're, we have to work, we have to stop at eight hours a day. And this is very good because people have to rest and 
be with their families. Their problem is that they commute to 2.5 hours to go to work and 2.5 hours to go back from, from their work to home. So they're actually working 13 hours a day and they're being paid eight. So why don't we change the, the, those anachronic old rules and look at the future now and pe uh, people work more hours in a day and less days in a week. And then the plants, the same plants, without investing a lot of more money, can create more jobs in the same plants because you can have more shifts. Now, uh, that's the second. The other one, they say, okay, we cannot compete with China because China will always be cheaper than us, right? And I said, but, but we compete because we're closer to the United States, right. so we can be fast, we're faster than them. But the problem is that maybe we are faster five or six days, but our customs take four or five days to clear things out. So we're, we lose our competitive edge, and we can, we can recover that just by making our customs do that in an hour instead of five, hours, instead of five days. So if we fix some things, I'm sure we will, we will enable for people to create a lot of jobs. And we're talking about the hundreds of thousands, not only in the textile sector, but also if we tackle insecurity, we can have a huge growth in tourism. We have the best surf beaches in the world. It's only that we don't, we don't have the, um, we don't exploit them as we should just because we, we have such a high crime rate. But if we tackle on that, that will naturally boom. It has been booming in the last year, so we will boom more when, when we tackle in, in crime. So a deregulatory agenda, yeah. a business-friendly agenda. Mm -hmm. That's the economy. I want to move to foreign policy. Okay. We are at the State Department. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the current government broke relations, uh, diplomatic relations with Taiwan yeah. in favor of China. Do you stand by that decision? What do you do now when you become president? Well, it's an ongoing discussion. We have, we have, we know that that was not a, it was not a, a transparent negotiation. It was done in the middle of a presidential campaign where the official party needed a lot of money. Uh, so I want to be very clear at this. We're not going to do what's in the U.S. best interest. And we're not going to do, of course, we're not going to do what's in China's best interest. We're going to do what's in El Salvador's best interest. And we have been talking with our U.S. allies to see you know, what's in for El Salvador and what's, we're not talking about China, but you, don't, you have to fill, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't leave, if you leave the table empty, somebody's gonna fill it. So it's important that, I'll give you an example. The Chinese wanted the, our, our La Union port, this port in the east side, of, in the, yeah, in the east side of the country, in the Fonseca Gulf. So they wanted that port. Uh, we stopped that. Even though we didn't have the power to do it, we, we put a lot of pressure to the government not to sign the deal with the Chinese. But we said to the Americans, well, we need an option, right? So the Japanese called, and the Japanese said, we want to invest in the port. The Japanese were the ones that gave us a loan for that port in the first place. So they want to invest in the loan. The, they sent the, their director of foreign cooperation, they, they sent it to El Salvador. He met with me and they said, we will do anything and we need to make that port operational, profitable, and sustainable. And then uh, OPEC called and said, we can finance any US corporation that want to invest in that port. And then the IDB called and said, we, we have a private uh, wing of our bank, and we are able to chip, and we want to chip in. If, that, if OPEC is financed, we want to chip in in the financing too. 
So now we have the Japanese, the Americans, and the multilateral uh, American community, Latin American community, uh, American community, uh, chipping in, in the into the port. So we will have a better port, a sustainable port, a profitable port. And that's a way better than a Chinese project. Why? Well, just because of the examples that you will, when you go in and you go into a project for geopolitical reasons and not for economic reasons, the success of the project, it's not guaranteed because that was not the focus when the project was done. When you have uh, private corporations and studies, well done studies like the ones that are being done by the Japanese right now, the focus on the project is to be sustainable and to be profitable. So to fail in something that has, is well designed, not, for, not to fail, it, that, would be, that, would be, that would be an exception. The rule is that it's going to thrive because it has, it, it is design, the project is designed to thrive. So for us, it's, a, it's a way better to have the US and the American uh, multilateral community and the Japanese doing that part than the Chinese. But like I said, with, the, with our foreign relations, it's, it's all into what's in the Salvador, it's El Salvador's best interest. It might be going back to Taiwan. It might, state, it might be staying with China. That's an ongoing discussion. And we're having very high level meetings about that. Venezuela. Yeah. The, the current administration wants to invite representatives of the Maduro regime to your inauguration. Yeah. Can you do anything about that? Yes. We have publicly and very clearly said that we don't want any, any uh, personnel or staff or delegation or, for God's sake, Maduro in our, in our inauguration. They're not invited. We don't recognize them as a legitimate government. Yeah. When you take office, what's the first thing you do when it comes to Venezuela? The same thing we have been doing. We'll call for free and fair elections in Venezuela. That's what the Venezuelan people want. Free and fair elections, of course, Maduro cannot be in power with, if the elections take place because of not. Nobody guarantees that the elections will be fair. But what everybody wants is free and fair elections in Venezuela and let the Venezuelan people choose their president. I'm sure they're not going to pick Maduro, but you know, let, them, let them choose. I know if we let democracy work, it will work for the best. And if you see, I mean, if you see, I know every Venezuelan I know is tired of Maduro. They're, they want their country to thrive too. They want their country to succeed. Through inflations, are the numbers I think are historically the worst in the, the history of the world. It's, I don't know, 3 million percent. It's, uh, it changes to every right, day. It's, so. it's not worth counting anymore. It's, it's, not worth worth, it's worthless paper, yes. Yeah, it's worthless paper. So, I mean, Venezuelans know they need a change. And for that change to happen, they need to have fair and free elections. And Maduro has to go. I, I just. I just don't think that Venezuelans want that regime anymore. Should there be military intervention to remove him? I wouldn't like seeing military interventions in Latin America. That's, we have been decades without military interventions in Latin America. I just wouldn't, wouldn't like to see that. So live with the situation as it is for? No, 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 no. There's, between black and white, there's a lot of gray. I mean, I, I don't even mind if it captured Maduro somewhere. I just, I just wouldn't like to see military interventions in Latin America uh, 
I just, people dying. I, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't like to see that. Really, I wouldn't like to see that. But of course, if you want to freeze their assets, I mean, if you want to take them to justice, uh, the Venezuelan people, there are tens of millions of Venezuelans that want to be free. I mean, we can support them in many ways. I just, I just don't, I'm just not a fan of military interventions. But, but I, I, I'm, totally, I'm totally in support of Maduro's regime to go. How would you like to see U.S.-El Salvador relations evolve while you're leader of the country? We will have the best relations possible that we can have with the United States. Why? Because it's our long time, very long time, natural biggest ally. Uh, like, I said, like I said, almost a third of our population lives here. Our, our, our currency is the dollar. More than, more than half, 60, 70% of our exports go to the United States, come to the United States. If we, want any, if we want to increase it, we have to take more advantage of CAFTA, and that would mean, mean export, export more to the United States. So it's a, I mean, we're here talking to a lot of business community and political community in the United States. We're, it just, it's just for us, it's the number one priority in foreign relations, our relationship with the United States. Just, just because of the fact that math overruns rhetoric. And I mean, we have, this is, I mean, this is the place to come. We, we talked about immigration earlier and talked about the relationship with the United States. You made clear that what you think the best solution is is to improve the economy so people don't want to leave. Totally understandable. That takes time, though. Would you support some kind of physical interdiction to reduce the number of people leaving? Would, would you go that far? It won't work. It, have, it hasn't worked for the last 30 years. Immigration just go up. If we can, the only way, it's like it's attacking into, the, into a disease. If you have, if somebody has a tumor in the brain, he has headaches, you can give him aspirin or Tylenol, and you can give him. Uh, he can take one, then two, then four, then twelve, then a hundred, but he won't cure his tumor. The only way to cure his tumor is to go into surgery. It might take a little longer than taking the pills, but it will work. And if we have done that before, we'll be there yet. We'll be there already. So. Uh, I, of course, I wouldn't. The, the other option is it won't work. I mean, I will not support something that will be a total failure. But what, what will work, and it's obvious, is that to create more jobs in El Salvador for once, and the other one is criminality. People, people flee El Salvador for two reasons. One is the lack of jobs, lack of opportunities, and the other one is violence. So if we tackle in violence, which we will, and, as we, and if we make the environment for job creation to thrive, which we will, um, Immigration will, will, the immigration flow will lower down so much, I'm sure it will lower, forceful immigration will lower to zero at the end of our term. And I think that's this the most ambitious you, you can get. Mm -hmm. And it's the right way to do it. And it's, uh, it's logical, it makes sense. And this, everybody has to agree on it because it's, it's, the best, it's the best for everybody. I mean, our fam we don't want our families to be torn away or torn apart. We want our families to stay together, to, and we want our people to stay in their country, thrive, work. We want the young people to know that they can have a future in their country. So that's the, that's the way to go. Mr. President-elect, everyone in this room wishes you the best of luck Thank and you. the greatest luck in achieving those goals. Thank you very much. We appreciate it.
Thank you for joining us. I'm Karin Zissis of ASC Way Online. This podcast was produced by Louisa Lemmy. The president-elect was just one of several high-profile guests we hosted for the Washington Conference on the Americas. The list of speakers included U.S. Vice President Mike Pence, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, Mexican Foreign Secretary Marcelo Ebrard, and Colombian Vice President Marta Lucia Ramirez, among others. Find out more about what these leaders had to say at as-coa.org slash WCA recap. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. For upcoming concerts, visit musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Your reviews help us get out the word. So please, if you enjoyed the podcast, give us five stars and write us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Stitcher.